Revelation 18, 20 through 24. Rejoice over her, O heaven, yes, you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced your judgment against her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a huge millstone and threw it into the ocean, saying, The great city Babylon will be thrown down violently just like that and will never be found again. The sound of harpists and musicians and flutists and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of whatever craft will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Because your merchants were the magnates of the earth. Because by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints, even of all who had been butchered on the earth. Father God, we thank you for your word. We say amen to your word. Uh, we desire to live our lives in conformity with your word. And so fill us with your spirit. Help us to continue to worship as we interact even with the difficult passages of scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I listened to a sermon while commuting back and forth to work this past week. And it was actually a, a pretty decent uh, a sermon, but my ears perked up when he began to go into a rant against preachers uh, and uh, saying that we are being unfaithful to the text of Scripture unless in every sermon we show Christ in the passage and we show the gospel in that passage. Now, if that's as far as he went, I would totally agree with him because Jesus is the one, after all, the pre-incarnate Son of God gave the Old Testament, Jesus gave the New Testament to us. So every time we are reading any portion of the Scripture, we are seeing Jesus, we are hearing Jesus. And the Gospel is far more comprehensive than how to become a Christian and the five points of Calvinism. And so, yes, every passage of Scripture needs to showcase Christ and needs to showcase the gospel, which goes way beyond uh, justification by faith alone. But typically, I perk up my ears when I hear this rant because that's not usually what people are talking about. And it became quickly apparent in this sermon that what he considered the gospel was incredibly truncated. It was simply what I would call the introduction to the gospel of the kingdom, which is glorious in its own right, but it's just the introduction. And uh, in effect, what he was advocating was eisegesis, that to be faithful to Scripture, you need to read something into the Scripture that's not there. Because not every passage of Scripture deals with the introduction to the gospel of the kingdom. It does deal with the good news, that's what gospel means, of the kingdom in general. Now, he went on and made things even worse. Um, he said that a lot of the old pulpits used to have written on them, inscribed as a reminder, as a rebuke to the preacher, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I agree with that statement as well. I don't want to see the preacher and his jokes and his opinions. I want to see Jesus and what Jesus' word has to say. And so that's a great saying. But unlike the Jesus that this preacher wanted us to uh, exclusively see in every passage, what I call the precious moments Jesus that will not ever make you uncomfortable about anything that's politically incorrect uh, nowadays, the Bible calls us to see Jesus in all of his character and work. Now, I'll hasten to say that what he preached on actually was pretty decent. It was a beautiful picture of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, based on 
on you know Christ's merits. Uh, it's beautiful. I preach those things. The book of Revelation presents that part of Jesus. He is a lamb who saves his people. He is a shepherd who shepherds his people. It's a wonderful, wonderful testimony. But the book of Revelation also presents Jesus as a warrior who fights against all of his enemies, as a judge, as an educator who wants us to have a comprehensive worldview, as a provider, as a providential governor, as a king who is interested in every aspect of your life and every aspect of planet Earth. The Bible presents a good news to the whole of creation and very, very bad news to those who rebel against his plans. And verse 20 is certainly not a precious moments Jesus that we are seeing. We're seeing Jesus, but it is not a precious moments Jesus. Verse 20 commands us to rejoice in a Jesus who has just finished absolutely devastating the city of Jerusalem in his wrath. And if we love the real Jesus, I think we need to understand a little bit about this part of his character. It says, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Yes, you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced your judgments against her. Now, three things I want you to notice about this verse that I did not put into your bulletin, so you'll have to write these down if you want to remember them and discuss them. But uh, most, well, I'd say every one of these three things is almost completely absent from the modern Precious Moments Church. First, God commands his people to rejoice in his judgments against evil, not simply in salvation from evil. We do not want evil to triumph, and so when God smashes tyranny, we not only may, but we must rejoice. Why? Because we must love the real Jesus and his kingdom more than anything else in life. If Babylon stands in the way of Christ's plans and purposes in history, then we should desire to see it completely dismantled. Second, I want you to notice, just like the last song that we sang, that this is not just God's judgment. The last clause says, because God has pronounced your judgment against her. Now, how could it be true that a tiny persecuted minority, that it was the church's judgment that resulted in Jerusalem being destroyed and this empire-wide economic meltdown happening as a result of the failure of the central bank there? How could it be said to be the church's judgment. Well, I believe it's said to be the church's judgment in part because she prayed that God would avenge the blood of the martyrs, of the saints. Uh, this was the answer to the prayer of the saints in chapter 6, verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the land? You see, God has taken the prayers of the saints, mixed them together with the intercession of Christ, and he has brought judgments to bear in history through those prayers. And over and over again in the book of Revelation, we have been seeing this pattern that God uses his people as a part of his judgments. We have must, must be involved. In chapter 8, we saw that after the intense prayers of the saints being mixed you know, their incense, incense being mixed with the prayers of Christ, God ushers thunderings, lightnings, hail. He begins to have trumpet after trumpet sounding and calling the regiments of angels to bring his retribution upon the earth. In chapter 11, the prayers of the prophets bring judgments on the earth. 
The song of vengeance at the end of chapter 11 results in more thunderings and lightnings affecting history. The full-orbed worship of chapter 14 leads to more judgments against their enemies. We see songs and prayers of the saints in chapters 15, 16, and 17 doing exactly the same thing. Take seriously the fact that your judgment is required. It is required. And you can only make your judgment righteous if it comes into agreement with the inspired and errant word of God. Otherwise, you're disobeying Christ's command, judge not that you be not judged, which in context means we cannot judge independently of Scripture. We can't judge people because we've been personally hurt or our pride has been hurt. No, our passion must be for Christ, for his kingdom, for his glory. And this is exactly what happens We align our judgment with God's judgment when we pray the imprecatory prayers, the Psalms. These are the prayers of Jesus. We're coming into agreement with them. Now the inverse, and by the way, Jesus commands us to judge. Just throw John 7, verse 24, back at people who say, judge not that you be not judged. They read the context. He's not talking about any and every judgment. John 7, 24 says, judge with righteous judgment. How do you judge with righteous judgment? You let God judge, right? It's not you independently judging. You're just quoting Scripture. That's all you're doing. That's God's judgment coming from your lips. Now, an inverse implication that could be deduced is that if we do not ask for judgment, no judgment will fall upon our enemies. Now, if that's true, if that's a true deduction, then it has staggering implications for why we are in such a mess in modern America and actually throughout Europe. James says, you have not because you ask not. The church of Jesus Christ today is not seeing Jericho's walls falling because we are not praying against Jericho. God has included numerous warfare prayers in his his inspired hymn book, the Psalter, and he expects us to come into agreement with those imprecatory psalms and to pray them. And as I mentioned earlier, the imprecatory prayers are the prayers of Jesus. The New Testament clearly says those psalms are the prayers of Jesus. The Father always hears Christ's prayers, but Jesus has chosen only to pray those imprecatory prayers, Hebrews says, in the midst of the brethren. So it's when the brethren themselves are singing these psalms like we just sang, binding the kings with God's right hand. It's only when we have the faith to sing those things that Jesus prays them and his prayers are always heard. As Chilton worded it, the church must pray for her enemy's defeat, a defeat that must come either by conversion or by destruction. Third, in that verse, we are commanded to rejoice because when we pray in faith, God agrees with our prayers and he pronounces our judgment. To me, that is encouraging because anything he pronounces will be done. His victory is sure. Again, Chilton's comments are spot on. He says, if the church in our age is to proceed from victory to victory, as did the church in the apostolic age, she must recover the triumphalistic perspective of the early saints. We are at war, a war in which the definitive victory has been won by our king. All of history is now a mopping up operation in terms of that victory, looking forward to the conversion of the world and the final overcoming of death itself. Our opposition is doomed to perish And the church is called to rejoice in the certain foreknowledge of her earthly vindication 
and ultimate victory. I mean, what greater reasons could there be to rejoice, right? Rejoicing shows faith. Rejoicing shows a submission to God's purposes in history. Rejoicing shows a true eschatology. Now, some amillennialists actually use uh, that term that Chilton used, triumphalistic, as a smackdown term, a term of derision to try to embarrass us, to shut us down. Uh, they think surely nobody would believe in being triumphalistic. Actually, I had a professor at uh, Westminster Seminary uh, who made a comment on uh, one of my essays. He, he gave me a good grade, but he said, Phil, this sounds like triumphalistic uh, eschatology. I talked about uh, with him about it. Triumphalistic eschatology. Well, what I told him, you know, he, he, he thought maybe he would be shaming me. I took it as a badge of honor. I said, well, what's the alternative to triumph? It's defeat. And you know what he said? He said, well, we win by losing. And he amplified, we lose in history, but we win in heaven. You know, you lose by dying as a martyr, but you win in heaven. Well, there's a, a little bit of an element of truth to that, but hey, the good news is not just good news about heaven, it's good news for planet Earth, amen? Christ will win the victory on Earth. And so there's plenty to rejoice about in history if the church would once again live by faith rather than by pessimillennialism, which, by the way, covers a whole bunch of different systems of eschatology. I just lump them all together, pessimillennialism. But others say that winning must wait until the final day of history, and they point to verse 21 as their definitive smackdown proof. They believe that there can be no winning in history. According to them, Babylon will be thrown down only on the last day of history, or if they're pre-mills, uh, it'll be on the day right before the millennium. According to them, um, uh, this is one of their key verses to disprove the idea of victory in history. How do they do that? Well, their objection is that verse 21 did not yet get fulfilled. They say that Babylon could not possibly refer to Jerusalem because Jerusalem still exists. <laughs> they say all it takes is one verse to disprove uh, preterism, uh, right? They point out that verse 21 says there's going to be a complete destruction of the city. It says, and a mighty angel took up a stone like a huge millstone, threw it into the ocean, saying the great city Babylon will be thrown down violently just like that and will never be found again. And they say, you've got to take that last phrase seriously, will never be found again. If you take that phrase seriously, there should not be a Jerusalem existing today, and for sure there should not be a wailing wall in Jerusalem. That's what they say. In fact, they use the wailing wall as a proof that Matthew 24, verses 1 through 2 could not yet have been fulfilled. You know, that uh, talks about the temple being completely dismantled. Uh, so what they say, there must yet be a future temple that's going to get built. After seven years, at the end of the tribulation, it'll get destroyed. Then Christ is going to rebuild it again. Uh, for some supposed uh, future millennium. So anyway, they claim that verse 21 is our Achilles heel. If the entire city was not demolished, this prophecy has not been fulfilled. And so I want to spend uh, you know, a fair bit of time on this verse and actually the, the next uh, three verses, they're all tied, uh, tied up together, and show how archaeology actually does show that this was very literally fulfilled. As Dr. George Wesley Buchanan worded it, in 70 AD, the Roman soldiers destroyed this city so completely that no one would ever realize that a city had been there. 
It was gone. It completely disappeared off of the map. Nothing but the Roman fortress of Antonia was left. Now, you're not going to get the information I'm giving to you this morning in any preterist commentary that I own, and I own, I think, all of them. (laughs) Uh, You won't get this material there. Uh, They typically say, we're just taking this symbolically, not literally. But as you know, I tend to think that every symbol in Revelation was a literal event in history that symbolized deeper truths. As I've said a number of times, just because the rock that Moses smote in the wilderness symbolized Jesus, so it was a symbol, right, does not mean that there was not a literal Moses who literally smote a literal rock and literal water gushed out of it. It's not either or, it is both and, and I think the same is true here. I believe Jerusalem as a whole was completely decimated with most of its stones being carried off to another place to build a pagan city. There was nothing left of the former city. Only the Roman fortress known as Antonia was left and it didn't count, that Roman fortress did not count because it was not a part of Jerusalem. The Jews considered it to be a Roman embassy on Roman soil. Nothing of true Jerusalem was left. However, before I prove that, let me briefly mention other non-literal approaches that uh, preterists have taken. There is an element of truth to these. We're going to be seeing that in a bit, but I don't think they adequately deal with the text. Some preterist commentaries point out that Matthew 23, verse 37 says, quote, Jerusalem, dot, 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 kills the prophets, unquote. So they say, Jerusalem kills the prophets, that's what the text says, and since buildings don't kill, we should take that reference to mean that the leaders of Jerusalem killed the prophets, and therefore in this passage we should say that the city of Jerusalem is not really the buildings that are being destroyed, it's the leaders who are being destroyed. You can kind of see where they're going there. And it's true, the Sadducean leaders were indeed destroyed, But the reason I don't find that explanation adequate at all is that verses 23 through 24 seem to speak of a geographical place being destroyed. There are several things that are said to no longer happen in you. Okay, these are not things happening inside of people or even inside of a church or inside of a group. No, these are things that happen inside of a city. Verse 22 says, the sound of harpists and musicians and flutists and trumpeters will never be heard in you Again, no craftsman of whatever craft will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. You keep reading in verses 23 through 24, and the text seems to be referring to things that used to exist in a geographical city, but now no longer exist because the city no longer exists. And I'm sure any futurists who might listen to this sermon might think, preach it, Phil, keep on going. This is the whole reason why you're dead wrong on your approach to Revelation. Okay, I'll deal with them in a bit. But I, I want to focus on what's wrong with our own camp and how we've been tending to interpret these passages. We do need to take them more literally. In response to their objections, some preterists say that the temple was being identified with the city here and that each of these verses is only referring to temple activities. Not city activities, temple activities. They say that verse 22 refers to temple music, the craftsmen who worked on the temple, the millstones that ground grains for priests and Sadducees. They say that verse 23 refers to the lamp of the temple that Titus, remember, carried off to 
carried off to Rome. The marriages could no longer be solemnized, solemnized, or however you pronounce it, in the temple. Um, sorcery that the Sadducees engaged in would stop because they were all dead. Now the problem I have with that interpretation is I just can't get over the words, the great city. I think it is a partial answer because the city symbolizes something, but I don't think it's adequate. Others point to the numerous contrasts between the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem, and they say if you really analyze these contrasts between the two, you're going to see, Phil, that this is talking about a system, a system of Judaism that was being permanently set aside for the uh, church and not the city itself. Now, it is true. It is true that the Old Covenant was completely set aside in A.D. 70. And you can look in your outlines. I've given kind of a chart uh, that shows... The, the symbolic contrast of two cities. It says old Jerusalem versus new Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem versus heavenly Jerusalem, non-continuing city versus eternal city with foundations, city whose builder is man, city whose builder is God, Jerusalem which now is, Jerusalem to come, Jerusalem beneath, Jerusalem above, Jerusalem in bondage, Jerusalem that is free, wicked city, holy city, harlot, bride, Babylon, Egypt, Sodom, Tyre versus holy Jerusalem, Israel, and saints. So they, they do have a, a point. There is something systematic that is being symbolized by both of those cities, and we won't get into that. But while I agree with what was symbolized, and that's primarily what the, the, the commentators focus on, I still believe we need to take the symbol as an actual event in history. So, for example, did an actual angel take an actual stone about the size of a millstone and throw it into the, into the sea. Yes, <laughs> I believe that's exactly what happened. And we've seen in the past other references to angels throwing stones. One was a huge stone that formed that massive crater that we looked, that crater lake, and impacted uh, one-third of the whole water system in Israel. We, we saw there was literal fulfillments of those previous stones. I don't see any reason why we cannot take this stone as a literal stone that was thrown uh, into the, the sea. It's a much smaller stone, so it may not have been seemed as significant. We've already seen that there was a number of meteors that fell in the previous three, uh, three years. So if this stone was a literal stone, and I believe it was, then it would follow the pattern used by prophets in the Old Testament. As one commentator worded it, this is an acted prophecy like those described in the Hebrew Scriptures. What is meant by that? Well, in Jeremiah 19, verse 11, Jeremiah broke a literal clay pot to symbolize the fact that Israel was going to be broken. So he was acting out a prophecy. That's what he means by an acted prophecy. In Jeremiah 51, verses 61 through 64, Jeremiah instructed Sariah that when he went to Babylon, he was to take the stone with a note. He was to throw that stone into the Euphrates River as a symbol that Babylon would sink and rise no more. Okay? So it was an acted out prophecy. And here, I believe, an angel threw yet another literal stone, perhaps it was a meteorite, into the water, to symbolize the fact that Jerusalem would be thrown down with violence and that all that was being judged, both physical old Jerusalem and symbolic old Jerusalem, all of it would not be seen again. Now, he's not denying that Jerusalem would ever be built again, but he's stating categorically that what was judged would not be found. 
Let me explain why I take this literally. My first reason is that I can't get around Luke 19. And if you want to follow along, I'll uh, uh, read in there. In Luke 19, Jesus said that the literal city would be 100% destroyed. In fact, Jesus insisted the entire city would be leveled to the ground. Context is clearly Jerusalem. Luke 19, starting to read at verse uh, 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. So he's weeping over Jerusalem. Saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So he's not simply talking about the temple being leveled. This is clearly talking about Jerusalem itself being leveled to the ground. Now I'm going to show in a bit that exactly this happened in AD 70, and that what we see today are actually built uh, under Hadrian and later times. In fact, some of the walls have been, I think, definitively proven to have been built uh, by, the, uh, by, by the Muslims uh, much later. And some archaeologists believe that even the Wailing Wall was built under Hadrian. Now, I have a different take um, based on the, the shape of the stones and everything. It seems like it was a Herodian wall. But the alternative position says, well, well, if, there, if Hadrian, which he, uh, the history tells us, took Herod's stones to build his wall, it's going to look Herodian because he's using pre-existing stones. So it's not definitive, but I don't see really any need to ditch establishment uh, archaeology on, on this issue. What I am saying is the inspired record of Luke 19 clearly talks about a literal city of Jerusalem being literally leveled to the ground. Okay? Second turn to Matthew 24. This is the one that dispensationalists frequently throw at us. Matthew chapter 24, I'm going to read the first two verses. This deals with the leveling of the temple. Now many premillennialists insist that the Wailing Wall was the Herodian portion of the temple, and therefore this prophecy was not fulfilled. They claim that we're waiting for a future temple to get built, to immediately get demolished after seven years, and strangely, once the seven-year temple is demolished, Christ is going to rebuild another temple, and he's going to reestablish animal sacrifices there. To me, this is just beyond bizarre, absolutely bizarre. So they're predicting two more temples in the future. So let me read uh, Matthew 24, 1 through 2. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all of these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they are outside the temple on the Mount of Olives. They're looking at the temple, which in my opinion includes the walls, though commentators do point out it wouldn't have to, because the text does say the buildings, the buildings of uh, the temple. But anyway, Jesus said all of it's going to be thrown down. Not one stone would be left upon another stone. Every stone would be displaced. In verse 34, Jesus said that every detail of what he had been describing in the previous 33 verses would be fulfilled to the T in one generation. A generation is 40 years. So within 40 years, this is all going to happen. Now again, I don't know how you can get around the literal nature of what would be destroyed. Literal stones, 
in literal temple, in literal city. It's all going down. And as our text words it, will never be found again. Did this happen? Yes. Now, I wasn't as clear on this when I first started preaching in this series on uh, Revelation, but I am now convinced that there was a far greater destruction than I had ever realized before. I've been reading a ton of archaeological records and historical records. The number of books that document this, uh, even though I've listed Ernest Martin's book as an intriguing theory, I will hasten to say that there are actually five theories of where the Temple Mount used to be, and there are different theories of uh, what the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall might be, yet none of those theories changes the fact of what I'm about to say to you. You don't have to buy into Martin's theory to accept what I'm going to tell you. But his book, The Temples That Jerusalem Forgot, gives detailed proofs and numerous eyewitnesses' accounts of Jerusalem being completely demolished and only, only, the Roman fort Antonia being left as a base of operations for Roman, uh, the Roman soldiers. And even part of that fort was demolished. Marilyn Sams has written on that work, uh, given uh, a book that gives much more information, and there are others who keep adding to the volume of evidences. Now, you can't prove anything from archaeology. Only the Bible is inspired, right? Uh, archaeology simply illustrates what we are interpreting from the Bible. Now, we do know from history and from archaeology that Titus was initially going to keep three Roman forts, but because of the frenzy for finding gold, the soldiers started tearing down even the Roman forts. The only Roman fort that was completely preserved was Fort Antonia. Titus had to break down part of its walls to capture that. So the question that might come into your minds is, why is the Wailing Wall not a contradiction to Christ's prophecy? Now, one answer is that it wasn't part of the temple proper, which would only be 600 feet by 600 feet. Uh, It was a wall going around the larger compound. Another possible answer is given by Martin that the wall wasn't part of Jerusalem. It wasn't a part of the temple. It was part of Fort Antonia. The third possible answer is that the wall was built by Hadrian in the second century using stones from Herod's temple. There's actually strong evidence even of that particular theory. But if either of the last two theories are correct, then the wall wasn't even Jewish. Let's take the second theory. Antonia was built by Rome, for Rome, as an outpost of Rome, contained only Roman soldiers. Now, it contained 10,000 soldiers, it seems that Josephus indicates 10,000 soldiers, And if that's the case, it would absolutely have to be much larger than the first picture in your outline shows. I've got a kind of a red circle around uh, the part that they think is the Fort Antonia. Uh, That little fort there could only contain, at most, it could squish in 600 Romans, not 10,000. So it does seem like it is much bigger. And then there's other evidences, uh, measurements, and uh, a statement by Josephus that he said several cities could be fit within Fort Antonia. It was just a massive, massive complex, according to Josephus. So the third and fourth pictures down on your outline represent two versions of a much newer theory that's held to, by the way, by Christians and Jews alike. They've come up with this new theory based on numerous evidence from biblical and ancient sources, and it was actually the biblical texts that kind of forced me 
mid-series out of the traditional view that the temple used to be on that big rock, you know, where the Dome of the Rock was, and say, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, further, it's further down. It's further down. Uh, but again, this sermon does not depend on that theory being true or not true. In any case, Fort Antonio was treated as an embassy, so to speak, and therefore was on Roman soil. And that's why the Jews who went into it on diplomatic business had to get cleansed when they came out of it. So it was not destroyed, but the 100% of the temple, 100% of what the Jews considered to be Jerusalem was torn down. Even the foundations of buildings were torn up. Now, if theory three is correct, then it was built by the man who engaged in the most massive butchering of Jews in the history of mankind. Okay, Hadrian. Either way, it's rather ironic that the thing that many modern Jews, especially Orthodox Jews, not all Jews, but many Orthodox Jews consider to be the most holy place was actually either a pagan fort dedicated to the god Jupiter or it was built by their arch enemy, Hadrian. Either way, it's just very, very, uh, I think, ironic. I've read numerous testimonies from Jews, Christians, and pagans that this western wall is not part of the temple. Probably part of the Roman fort Antonia, not the temple. Now, since this verse deals with the city, not just the temple, let me give you a sampling of some of the accounts I've read of nothing being left of Jerusalem after AD 70. They're quite clear on this point. Josephus, the eyewitness historian who wrote the most detailed account of the war, said this, Jerusalem was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those that came to that place believe that it had ever been inhabited. Now you might wonder why foundation stones would even be dug up, but it was because the soldiers had been very successful, this is a very wealthy city, been very successful in finding treasure hidden in walls, hidden under pavement stones, that they just went wild. They dug up everything, trying to find the buried treasure that was out there. And uh, they dug uh, throughout the city uh, the foundation stones of every house. Jesus said that Jerusalem would be leveled to the ground. Josephus said that Jerusalem was, quote, laid even with the ground. Was it fulfilled? Josephus says it was in almost identical language. Um, Jesus said that the foundations of houses would be dug up, and Josephus said the whole city was dug up to the very foundation. Nothing was left to even make you think there was a city there before. Now, you could call Josephus a liar, but he was an eyewitness of the war, and his testimony is a word-for-word -word confirmation of Luke 19. I've read articles trying to debunk his testimony based on archaeological finds, but in order to do so, they have to discount the words of an eyewitness and they have to discount the words of the scripture itself. The next eyewitness was Eleazar. Elie this, this testimony comes from AD 73, before Masada was taken. So it was three years after Jerusalem was destroyed. He was one of the generals fighting against uh, Rome. He, he had a holdout out on that fort of uh, Masada. So he said, where, this, where is this city that was believed to have God himself inhabiting therein? It is now demolished to the very foundations and has nothing but that monument of it preserved, I mean the camp of those that have destroyed it, which still dwells upon its ruins. A few women are there preserved alive by the enemy for our bitter shame and reproach. So Eleazar said that Jerusalem was demolished down to its very foundations and had nothing left to 
but the Roman Fort Antonia with some Jewish women who were kept there as prostitutes. He too confirms there was a literal fulfillment. In AD 79, just nine years after Jerusalem was destroyed, Pliny said nothing was left of Jerusalem except a heap of ashes. Said nothing else was left. A first century document known as Second Baruch said that even the foundations of Jerusalem's walls were overthrown. Now that is not true of the walls that you see at the Temple Mount. It's one of the reasons why I kind of like Martin's theory. But there are numerous witnesses that everything, including the walls of Jerusalem, were laid low. So either the current walls were built under Hadrian using Herod's stones, or they're exclusively part of Fort Antonia. One of those two theories. Now I don't know any other way of reconciling these numerous historical statements with the archaeological record. In AD 225, Hippolytus said that Jerusalem was only a heap of stones after the war, and where the temple used to be, there is now nothing but weeds. Now, I've read a lot of Christian archaeologists this week, and I have seen numerous proofs that it was constantly being plowed even up to the 1930s. There are prophecies about the temple being plowed. Uh, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 26, 18, Micah 3, verse 12, and both Jewish and Christian sources say that once the foundations of the temple were completely removed, the field that the temple used to sit on was plowed by the Romans. Now you go try to do that on the, the Dome of the Rock platform. It's rock. It's nothing but, you cannot, you cannot plow that. It's solid, solid rock. But Martin's temple site was plowed as late as the 1930s. The Clementine homilies were written around uh, 8220. One of those homilies said that not a single stone was left intact where it had been placed. Eusebius of Caesarea said in the early 4th century, the hill called Zion and Jerusalem, the buildings there, have been utterly removed or shaken in fulfillment of the word, their whole ancient holy place, are to this day as much destroyed as Sodom. Their once famous Mount Zion, instead of being as it once was, the center of study and education based on the divine prophecies, is a Roman farm like the rest of the country. Yea, with my own eyes I have seen the bulls plowing there and the sacred site sown with seed and Jerusalem itself become a stone quarry. In the mid-fourth century, Athanasius said, if the Jews had their ancient city and temple, then they could deny that Christ had come. But now all prophecy is sealed and their gift of prophecy, their holy city and their temple are taken away forever. Not just the temple being taken away, but their holy city was taken away. There was nothing left in the mid fourth century. All the way to the time of Gregory of Nyssa in the late fourth century, Jerusalem and temple were still gone. He said, but now, no traces even of their temple can be recognized and their splendid city has been left in ruins so that there remains to the Jews nothing of the ancient institutions. And I could read other examples of Jews and Christians who saw Jerusalem for themselves. Martin summarizes numerous other witnesses and he says this, there was such an abundance of various stones dislodged from their foundations that the Emperor Hadrian 60 years later was able to build an entirely new city Alia, to the northwest of the former city by reusing many of those ruined stones. The original southeast area of Jerusalem remained an open quarry until as late as the time of Eusebius. 
He lamented that stones of Jerusalem and the temple were in his day still being used for homes, temples, theaters, etc. What must be realized is the fact that Jewish Jerusalem and the Holy Temple were so dismantled and torn down that even the foundational stones of the buildings were uprooted and in complete ruin. These eyewitness descriptions are in contrast to one complex of buildings that almost completely escaped the destruction and continue to remain as functioning structures within the devastated area of Jerusalem. That complex of buildings was the Haram Esh Sharif that we still see standing to this day. And that last sentence is referring to the platform rock on which the Dome of the Rock sits. And the Wailing Wall, that's the west side of the Haram Esh Sharif. That was the Antonia Fortress. The second from the bottom picture of your outlines, if you take a look at that, shows how Josephus's measurements of Fort Antonia fit perfectly on top of Haram Esh Sharif. Now, it's only one theory, but it's a very intriguing one. Now, even if you were to reject Martin's thesis that many Jews and Christians now hold to, you still cannot evade the conclusion of Luke 19, that it was fulfilled. The fact of the matter is that even among secular archaeologists, there is no consensus on where the temple used to be. Okay, that's how thoroughly dismantled the temple had become. Experts are guessing as to its location. Even those who say that the Wailing Wall is the outer wall around the temple admit it's not part of the temple proper. In any case, there is no consensus on the location of the temple, not even among Jewish archaeologists. For such massive lack of consensus to be there illustrates the truth of Christ's prophecy. But it wasn't just the location of the temple that's in dispute. There's even dispute about where the city of David exists. Jerusalem was so thoroughly removed that it's hard to get archaeologists to agree on the details. Now here's the important point. What they all are agreed on you can't get them to agree on the former location. What they all are agreed on is that the pre-war city no longer exists. Martin says, all archaeologists and historians today, including Rittmeyer, readily admit that the Haram Esh-Sharif is the only facility of pre-destruction Jerusalem that survived the war with its foundation stones still in evidence. Those four Herodian walls of Fort Antonia and its interior uh, buildings were the only man-made structures that Titus, the Roman general, allowed to remain for the protection of the 10th Legion left to monitor Roman affairs. And I've checked with many sources, and I don't think that statement can be contradicted. Now, I've read a couple of articles that try, but very pitiful, very unsuccessful. Even Wikipedia even Wikipedia agrees, saying what is today known as the old city was laid out by the Roman Emperor Hadrian in the second century when he began to rebuild Jerusalem as a pagan city. In 130, Hadrian visited the ruins of Jerusalem, remaining after the first Jewish-Roman War of 66 to 73. He rebuilt the city, renaming it Aelia Capitolina in 135 CE. Now, I've probably given you way more quotes. I've tried to be very very concise and selective, but I've probably given you way more quotes than you even needed to be convinced. But this is a verse that is trumpeted so frequently uh, that, yeah, being unfulfilled, I wanted to make sure you had no doubts. Various forms of futurism are just flat out wrong in this verse. It was perfectly fulfilled. Now, as I mentioned before, symbols symbolize something. Duh. I mean, it's obvious. 
if the disappearance of the temple and city symbolized something else disappearing, what is it? Well, certainly the Babylonian, Tyrian, international banking system, the military-industrial complex that we looked at last week, uh, completely disappeared. Since it was so tightly connected with the temple, it disappeared with the temple. Remember that? that they used the temple as their central bank because it was one of the most massively protected fortresses in the world. Um, so that was dismantled, and uh, the whole smoothly running machinery across the empire was dismantled with it. Second, the Sadducees and priests disappeared. They were the ones who were running the show for Jerusalem, for the bank, for the politics, for the temple. So all of the corruption that Jesus opposed, it's gone, cleansed. And of course, the temple disappeared. And by the way, this is a great, great proof to bring up to Jews when you're witnessing to them. There are a number of prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, I won't go over all of them here, but a number of prophecies in the Old Testament that predicted that the Messiah would come while the temple was still standing, and very specifically, Ezra's temple, the second temple, while it's still standing, which means if the temple is gone, they've missed their Messiah. It's a great apologetic text to use uh, with Jews. Uh, their Messiah has already come. And then finally, the old covenant sacrificial system completely disappeared. Hebrews 8 verse 13 says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews was written in AD 66, so he wasn't kidding when he said it's ready to vanish away. Within three and a half to four years, it disappeared. And by the way, Hebrews does not anticipate a resurrection of a sacrificial system in the future. Such a sacrificial system, if it were to be resurrected, would be absolute blasphemy. It would be heresy because it would be a denial of the finished work of Jesus Christ. There was no one who, not even the premillennialists prior to uh, uh, the late 1800s believed the sacrificial system would be resurrected. This was a heresy that began with the Schofield, uh, well, with dispensationalism, and he popularized it with the Schofield Reference Bible. They're the ones who scream about this verse, and hopefully after this sermon you will see they're the ones who violate it. Now let's finish off verses 22 through 23. These verses piece together language from Old Testament passages of Israel's first exile. So he's saying the second exile is going to be very similar to the first exile. For example, Jeremiah 25, 8 through 10, spoke of an utter destruction of Jerusalem and temple in the time of Jeremiah and ends with exactly the same language that we have in verses 23 through 24. He's saying that the second exile is going to be similar to the first. Well, simple logic tells you that that means you can't rule out Jews coming back into the land. You can't rule that out. Um, it's the old city, the old system, the old temple in which music, craftsmanship, mill, lamp, or marriage do not occur. So let me read that for you. Jeremiah 25, beginning at verse 8. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, who will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones, and the light of the lamp. 
Okay, exactly the same language we have in our verses. Futurists interpret Jeremiah 25 in exactly the same way that I interpret it. They're forced to because it says it's Babylon. And so they know you can't rule out Israel coming back into the land because the same Jeremiah prophesied they would come back to the land 70 years later. But it says that there won't be anything of the old city and temple left in which these things can ever be done. Do you see how it relates to what we're talking about now? It doesn't rule out Jews living in Jerusalem, Jerusalem being rebuilt at some point. But um, anyway, uh, Chilton tries to show exegetically all five things mentioned here were just tied to the temple. I don't think you need to go there. I apply it to Jerusalem as a whole. I take it literally. The old city ceased to exist, and the Romans forbade Jews from entering the area. Under Hadrian, it was rebuilt as Aelia, Capitolina, pagan city. They were forbidden entrance. It's a fact of history that no musician, craftsman, food maker, lamp, or marriage happened in the old city or temple. They no longer existed after 8070. The Jerusalem we have today is completely different Jerusalem. And verses 23 through 24 end with three more reasons for this destruction. I've already dealt extensively with the first two uh, in previous sermons, so I'll just be brief. First reason is because your merchants were the magnates of the earth. Now, the Greek word for magnates is megistones, a word that refers to either political power or people who have been made great through political power. So it was an offense to God that these merchants enriched themselves through the state, through statism. So everything I said in my last sermon is being reiterated in that one clause. God hates, he hates statist economies, whether you label them mercantilist, Marxist, socialist, Keynesian, you know, Spencerian democracies, if there's even a whiff, even the sm smallest whiff of the idea that merchants can get rich through the involvement of the state, God hates it and God destines that for judgment. That's what's going on here. Beale says, that this word, quote, implies that the merchants and the system supporting them are to be judged. Totally agree. Second reason was because by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Now, I dealt extensively with the fact that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were deeply involved in the occult. And so that was one of the reasons for, uh, for Jerusalem being punished. The third reason is given in verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints, even of all who had been butchered on the earth. And this too dates this whole passage to 8070 in Jerusalem. I don't see any way of getting around it. As Mackenzie words it, in terms of literal cities, the odious distinction of killing the prophets belongs solely to Jerusalem. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus told the Jewish religious leaders of his day that all the righteous blood shed on the land would be required of them. Matthew 23, 35 through 36. And let me go ahead and read uh, from Matthew 23 because it nails down the fulfillment of this verse to Jerusalem in AD 70. Matthew 23, 29 through 39. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And I say... And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. 
serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall know, see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me end with just a few concluding uh, remarks. First, let's worship the God portrayed in this passage. He is a God who reveals himself to us for our benefit. He is a God whose word can be trusted. Every detail of scripture is inspired and perfect. He's a God who controls history so that he can accurately make these kinds of predictions. Let's worship this amazing God and, and uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at his right hand. Second, let's see Revelation as a philosophy of history. Yes, a huge chunk of revelation has been fulfilled in the past, but it shows us, based on the God who does not change, how we can read our own times, how God just deals in history. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means this does not just apply to yesterday, it applies to today and to the future, any time that there are circumstances that are similar. We can apply it. Third, let's see Revelation as a book that gives hope. If the church could triumph even during the worst times and the darkest times of history, it can triumph in every age. If Christ could deal with the powerful military-industrial complex of that day, he can humble ours today. Fourth, let's glory in the fact that God cares about us. He cares about the persecuted. He vindicates his people. He does not ignore their plight. Fifth, let's balance this with the realization that we have a responsibility to take our persecutors to the courtroom of heaven and ask God for justice. Uh, think about it this way. Just as a human court is not going to give you justice unless the victim brings the criminal to court, that's the way God has ordained uh, for his heavenly court to be. God has willed his court to declare our judgments. Verse 20, the church's judgments must take place, and when they do, God promises he will bind in heaven what we bind on earth. This involves prayer, church discipline, using spiritual weapons rather than carnal weapons, singing the imprecatory psalms, taking spiritual warfare seriously. But if God is implementing the church's judgments, as verse 20 says that he is, then we need to pick up the stick, get on the stick, and take ownership of these judgments in history. And last, let's not be satisfied with anything less than a sweeping aside of all idolatry and replacing it with the kingdom realities of heaven. I think this is just a beautiful prefigurement of the future. Nothing remaining. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ must remain at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are subdued, all things are put under his feet, all things are reconciled to him. So if we want to hasten the day of the second coming, as 2 Peter 3 verse 12 words it, we must be involved in reconciling this world as God's ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20 can be our passion as we interact with the world. It says this, 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And I love that triumphalistic language. His purpose is reconciling the world to himself. Do you think this is going to be a converted world? That's his purpose. That's what the Great Commission is about. It's discipling all nations, teaching them to obey everything. He's not going to be a failure on the greatest of the Great Commissions. He's not going to be a failure on the purpose that he has stated here. May we get on board with that purpose so as not to be a part of what is removed from this world. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, the challenges that it gives to us. And Father, that it is sufficient for overturning Uh, the hatred of man and of archaeologists who despise your word, who do everything they can to overturn your word, and yet archaeology itself has been proving over and over again, showing uh, the the truthfulness of every statement that you have. Father, we don't believe in archaeology. We believe in your word, and your word is the judge of all truth statements. truth claims. Your word is truth, and we trust it. We bless you, Father, for the privilege that we have of being ambassadors, foot soldiers in your kingdom, advancing your cause, and I pray that you would enable us to do so effectively. In Jesus' name, amen.